Today's combine harvesters are really modern marvels, capable of harvesting thousands of bushels per hour, including cutting, threshing, cleaning, and capturing the grain, or picking, if that's the word you like to use. But the path from hand tools to the mechanical harvester is a fascinating one, which involved several backyard farm shop style innovations, intellectual property battles, labor challenges, and pioneering business practices that today might consider standard for modern agribusinesses. But all all this happened during the formative time in the 1800s, and Cyrus Hall McCormick was right in the middle of it all. And that's our topic for today's episode. Before we dive into that incredible story, I do want to thank our quarterly presenting sponsor, which this quarter is a company that tells you what you might not want to know. Every three seconds, FarmWave's Harvest Vision system is counting your harvest losses off the header and from the combine and reporting them to you in the cab in real time. You can make changes on the fly and watch your loss counts drop without having to stop or do manual harvest loss counts again. Models are currently available in corn and soybeans, and several other crops are in development for release soon. But you don't have to take my word for it. You can listen to FarmWave founder Craig Gansel back on episode 383 and hear feedback from actual farmer customers at the end of episodes 387 and 390. And we've got one more of those coming up for you here in a couple weeks. But thank you again to FarmWave for supporting farm innovation and, of course, the Future of Agriculture podcast. All right, when Cyrus McCormick was born back in 1809, grain was still harvested by hand, using the same tools that had been around for literally thousands of years. I mean, we're talking B.C. here, the, the scythe and the sickle. A capable person could maybe harvest an acre of grain in a long day if conditions were just right, uh, but it was back-breaking and brutal work, and in a lot of cases, the limiting factor to how much grain a farm could produce, because as you know, uh, harvest needs to happen right away. There's a very short window before the elements and the birds and the insects and mother nature takes its course. And of course, the crop is lost. So for literally thousands of years, it's hard for us to conceptualize thousands of years, isn't it? But thousands of years, this was the process with little to no change. So in the grand scheme of things, the fact that in 1831, Cyrus McCormick took on the task of developing a mechanical reaper, that might sound like a long time ago, 1831, 192 years ago, but it really wasn't that long in the course of history when you consider the thousands of years that came before it. This invention was a horse-drawn mechanical reaper so that it could cut and bale small grains. And it, in large part, began the process for mechanizing agriculture, obviously changing our industry and our lives forever. But the way it went from an idea to a prototype to eventual adoption is a long and winding and in a lot of ways surprising road. I mean, you think if someone showed up with a mechanical way of doing backbreaking labor, everyone would jump onto it. But that wasn't the case then. And a lot of ag tech entrepreneurs will tell you showing up with a good idea is not enough today. Anyway, we'll get there. Cyrus McCormick back then in 1831 was only 22 years old. Youngster. He lived on his family's farm in the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia. Just like his father, he was not only a farmer, but also a tinker and someone who was really mechanically interested and mechanically inclined. At the age of just 15, he invented a lightweight cradle for carting harvested grain around. His father, Robert McCormick, had invented other farm implements and had a blacksmith shop that he toiled away at for hours on end. And over the course of nearly 20 years, Robert McCormick had worked on this problem. 
of trying to build a mechanical reaper. Uh, then one day, he decided that it was time to pass the project on to his son. It's not very clear to me whether he was just kind of ready to give up or if young Cyrus like showed a lot of excitement or promise for taking it on. But uh, somewhat mysteriously, in 1831, Robert essentially deeded all of his years of work on the horse-drawn mechanical reaper over to Cyrus. And my theory on this is he saw Cyrus's potential to really commercialize an invention that was already either done to the prototype stage or very, very close. Uh, but none of the history books will say that. So that's just my speculation. It is said, though, that Cyrus became obsessed with this work. He took very seriously the responsibility of continuing on this work of the mechanical reaper and obsession for work is a common theme with ag innovators, especially the historical ag innovators that we feature on the show, like William Morris and Carl Bosch. All three of them, Morris, Bosch, and now McCormick, worked around the clock, completely focused on the job that they were doing and the change they were attempting to make in the world. Uh, supposedly, in just a matter of a couple months, Cyrus McCormick had taken his father's work and reconfigured his experiments and came up with a working model. And during this time, he worked with someone named Joe Anderson, who was a slave owned by the McCormick family at the time. This is an aspect of the story that I really wish there was more information available because it's clear to me that Joe Anderson played a major role in developing the Reaper, both with Robert and with Cyrus. Uh, but given the time period and the place we're talking about, America in the early 1800s in the South, not much has been recorded about Joe's contributions and Cyrus really is sort of given all the credit for being the inventor of this mechanical reaper. Uh, it's a shame that our history isn't more accurate to reflect the true contributions of people like Joe Anderson. So I, I really did want to make the point here of highlighting him to the extent that I can, because he's said to have toiled alongside Cyrus in that farm shop day after day on the mission of not only inventing the reaper, but also improving it in the many years that followed. In the 1931 book, The Century of the Reaper, Cyrus McCormick's grandson acknowledges the credit due to Joe Anderson. He says, quote, Joe Anderson deserved honor as the man who worked beside him, being Cyrus McCormick, in the building of the Reaper. Joe Anderson was a slave, a general farm laborer, and a friend, end quote. And retired curator of the McCormick farm, Lester R. Godwin Jr., is quoted as saying that Joe Anderson, quote, has as much to do with the later development of the Reaper as Cyrus McCormick. So although it's not well documented how the work was divided between Cyrus and Joe, it is clear that they worked together on the mechanical Reaper. And in the summer of 1831, they decided that their invention was ready for a public demonstration. This demonstration is recognized as a symbolic landmark in agricultural technology. It was the first documented public demonstration of a mechanical harvester. As I mentioned earlier, the last innovation in this space was the sickle, which was invented, you know, over 4,000 years before this time. And in 1831 was still the way people were harvesting grains by hand. McCormick's very first reaper could harvest eight acres in a day with two people. So at least four times improvement in his very very, very first prototype. So to say the least, this was a big, big deal. Uh, but the truth was only about 75 people showed up that day. It probably had to do with the fact that people 
probably thought there was no shot this 22-year-old guy was going to come up with anything that they could actually use. Uh, and the fact that every able-bodied person needed to be out in the field at that time harvesting their own crop to capture as much as possible during the short harvest window. Uh, but those that were there witnessed something special. There's a video on YouTube called The Romance of the Reaper. And if that name sounds a little bit cheesy, I'll tell you the video also is very cheesy. I watched it during my research. Uh, but during the video, the narrator uses the following words to explain the significance of what they witnessed on that day in 1831. Here's the quote. Here was a scene to make historians wonder why most men had been content with the same farm tools which had been used for centuries, while the world was crying for bread. Here was a nation which had been established more than 50 years, but so far no grain had ever been cut by machine. And today we can realize the magnitude of the event when we consider that if we reaped our grain as the Romans did with sickle and scythe, it would require half the population to produce our bread, not to mention the rest of the food we eat. Here indeed was an eventful day the world's first successful reaper. Cyrus McCormick's machine had cut as much as six men could have cut by the best methods in use before that time. History had been made on that day on a little Virginia farm. The hopes and dreams of a father had come true through the genius, the will, and the determination of his son. Your reaper is a success, Robert McCormick told him, and I'm proud to have a son do what I could not do. Now, if that sounds a little bit dramatic and a little bit cheesy, it definitely is, uh, especially since it is questionable at best whether or not Cyrus McCormick actually invented the first Reaper. Now, I'm not saying he stole the idea from anyone else other than probably taking too much credit for the ideas of his father and perhaps Joe Anderson, as we talked about. But there were other similar innovations all popping up around that same time. Another reason that this demonstration probably wasn't as significant as the Romance of the Reaper is indicating there uh, beyond just the symbolism of the first public demonstration and what that meant for the times that followed is that McCormick's harvester had some big limitations. Uh, the biggest one probably was that it cut really well on flat ground, but it didn't handle uneven ground too well, which if you've driven around the eastern U.S. is pretty common. So despite all of the validation Cyrus received that day from both his biggest supporters and his biggest biggest critics that were in attendance, he didn't sell any Reapers. In fact, Cyrus made virtually no sales for nearly a decade, 10 years after that demonstration, pretty much no sales. So this was in the 1830s at the kind of the tail end of uh, the Industrial Revolution in Europe, and it seemed to be kind of finally hitting agriculture. Throughout the decade of the 1830s and in the years that followed McCormick's landmark demonstration, other mechanical harvesters started popping up. Even before McCormick's Reaper, Patrick Bell is said to have invented a model of his own, but never patented or commercialized it. He was in Europe, but his designs were slowly making their way to the U.S. Cyrus didn't immediately patent his invention either. And when he finally tried to do so three years later in 1834, another farmer and inventor, Obed Hussey, had already patented his own reaping machine, although supposedly it was invented after McCormick's demonstration. But then in 1835, Hiram Moore in Michigan built and patented the world's first combine harvester, which was capable of reaping, threshing, and winnowing cereal grain. All of these, of course, were horse-drawn at that time. 
And these are just a few of the many, many mechanical harvesters that started popping up in the 1830s and continued to emerge from hundreds of farm shops over the next few decades. Actually, there's debate about whether or not Cyrus McCormick should be credited with inventing the mechanical reaper because of people like Patrick Bell, Obed Hussey, and the various farm inventions that all started popping up around the same time. And isn't that interesting how innovation works that way, where you can go thousands and thousands of years with, with no innovation in the space, and it seems to kind of simultaneously be coming together in various farm shops around the country and around the world. My guess is that the name Cyrus McCormick would hardly be found in history books if his only claim to fame was inventing the first mechanical reaper. But this is where the story starts to get really interesting and where Cyrus not only makes history, but provides a ton of lessons for all of us in agribusiness today, in my opinion. So he had no sales, he had very little intellectual property. Other people were patenting harvesters before him. He had a ton of competition popping up all the time. It must have dawned on him at some point that an idea and a prototype just was not going to be enough to change history or even build a viable business. Uh, even a revolutionary technology uh, for the time, for the status quo of the time, was not enough. And this is where Cyrus McCormick began to carve out what will ultimately become his legacy as one of the greatest business innovators of all time, in my opinion, agricultural or otherwise. First and foremost, he clearly developed an obsession with continuous improvement. And this is going to come up time and again throughout the rest of today's episode. He knew that this working prototype wasn't good enough. So for the rest of the 1830s, while he sold exactly zero reapers, as I mentioned, he worked continuously on making improvements to the product. But he had to do this as a side hustle because he still had responsibilities, not only on the farm, but his family was building a rather large blacksmith and metal smelting business. Uh, but unfortunately, this business failed in the wake of the big financial crisis of that time, which is known as the Panic of 1837. Uh, during that time, a financial partner backed out of uh, their business arrangement and almost caused the family to go into bankruptcy. So after that family business failed, there in uh, the wake of 1837, Cyrus appears to go all in on the Reaper. He made more improvements, conducted more public demonstrations, and something in that time shifted Cyrus from a farmer, tinkerer, and engineer into a full-on businessman who wanted to scale. I don't know if this is you know learning from the experiences of the family business or if it was out of necessity of needing to get a new business and a new income off the ground or just out of sheer competitiveness for all these other Reapers that were being developed. Uh, the Cyrus McCormick that we see from that time, late 1830s, early 1840s, is clearly a trailblazing entrepreneur, a genius marketer, and a formidable business builder. And uh, I'm going to tell you exactly why I say that. Uh, he finally sold two machines in 1841. So that's a decade later after that demonstration. Seven in 1842, 29 in 1843, and 50 the following year. So he's he's growing. He's, he's finding this product market fit and learning how to build a business. If I had to sum it up, I'd say Cyrus McCormick was way ahead of his time 
when it came to his desire to scale, to grow and not just run a profitable business out of a backyard farm shop. And it was clearly a fight every step of the way. He fought viciously for intellectual property rights, but for many reasons, it was a losing battle for him. He had to fight for each sale, even though it was a clear labor saver for farmers. And his first versions were only $50. Sure, it was a lot more at the time than it is today, but still $50. Farmers weren't buying them. But McCormick believed in the future of his product, and this is where he was really able to put his strategic genius into practice. So in the early 1840s, he started gaining a little bit of traction, and he starts looking for strategic advantages over all these other mechanical harvesting companies that have popped up. So he develops licensee relationships with some other small blacksmith shops to help him with production and to try to keep up with his growing sales in places like Ohio and Michigan and Wisconsin and Tennessee. In the mid-1840s, Cyrus travels west to try to sell some of his reapers, and he has this sort of epiphany that really ends up changing the course of where he takes his company. So he sold, uh, this was 1844, and I think he sold 50 reapers that year, but he realized that the future of his company was not going to be in the eastern U.S. It was going to be in the prairie states of the Midwest. He sort of logs this idea away in his mind and seems to be kind of plotting and planning for a move west. Then in 1847, his father died there in Virginia, and he decides to move from Virginia to Chicago, uh, take on a financial partner and build his biggest factory there in Chicago. That financial partner was a significant one. It was Chicago Mayor William Ogden Uh, in Chicago as a city would not at that time have been the obvious choice. Like a lot of things, Cyrus was ahead of his time when choosing which city to sort of plant his flag and build his flagship factory. Uh, He chose Chicago over more prosperous and more established places like St. Louis and Milwaukee. But as you know, the combination of rail access and access to the Great Lakes would eventually turn Chicago into a major, major hub for all agricultural commodities. In 1848, that factory they built in Chicago produced 500 machines, which was roughly the amount McCormick had sold in total leading up to that year. A PBS profile on Cyrus McCormick puts it this way. McCormick's success in Chicago raised the fortunes of the Midwestern farmer. They, in turn, helped make Chicago the greatest grain port in the world. This big move right after his father's death reminded me a little bit of William Morris from our first history episode. It was when his mentor died, Charles Piper, that Morris really just seemed to go all in on his life's work. A similar thing here. And I I wonder if there's something to be said from that experience of of kind of thinking, you know, it's all up to me now that I only have one life to live and nobody's going to do it for me. And I have to sort of go all in and and try this. And that mentality seemed to, to drive Morris. It seemed to drive McCormick as well. Of course, I'm speculating here on the mindset, but there's no doubt that this big move from home in Virginia to Chicago was a key piece of the McCormick story and of their success. Building in Chicago was just one of the many unconventional ingenious strategic moves that Cyrus made. Another gets back to an earlier point about continuous improvement. Not only was he improving the Reaper, the the product over time, but he also noticed that not all of his licensees were putting out the same quality of products. So he began to get out of all these licensee agreements uh, so that he could handle more and more of his manufacturing in-house with facilities in Cincinnati and New York, and now the addition of this flagship facility in Chicago. 
Now, side note here, the year after moving to Chicago, so in 1848, Cyrus tried to renew his patent with the U.S. Patent Office, but he was denied. Um, He ended up spending years and years and years in court fighting for his patents against a group of his biggest competitors who were represented by a bunch of high profile lawyers, including a name you may have heard of, Abraham Lincoln, who supposedly collected his first $1,000 fee as a result of these lawsuits with Cyrus McCormick. Always love it when, you know, history sort of converges in this way. But anyway, this commitment to quality and consistency that's causing him to back out all these licensee agreements is a big part of what makes Cyrus McCormick so successful. His top priority above all else seems to be building trust with customers. Eventually, his grandson would write in uh, 1931 this about Cyrus, quote, he preached quality to the factory men until it was engraved on their hearts. In modern parlance, he sold them quality so well they understood the necessity for it and therefore believed in it. Each year, the McCormick Reaper became heavier, stronger, better. Each year, it gained more favor with farmers. My father, and so he's talking about Cyrus's son here because this is his grandson talking. My father has told me about how he used to hear his father, so Cyrus, he used to hear his father say, I don't want to make my entire profit from a single sale. I want to make the machine so good that the farmer and his sons will come back again and again to buy more McCormick machines. As early as 1842, Cyrus began offering something unheard of for any product in that price range, an absolute guarantee of satisfactory performance, or you get your money back. Now, it's kind of cliche to say that now. I almost went into my infomercial voice a little bit, but this was unprecedented at the time. It was certainly a bold move. And over the years, this grew into a more specific guarantee of 15 acres a day or your money back, meaning he was guaranteeing a farmer would be able to harvest 15 acres per day which was several multiples higher, as you heard earlier, than anything most farmers had ever experienced before. He also stood out from his competitors by offering a transparent fixed price. In the late 1840s, this is $120. Supposedly, McCormick's motto was one price to all and satisfaction guaranteed. This obviously took a ton of the risk and worry away from farmer customers. Uh, It was common for companies at that time, and in a lot of cases, it still is today, to expect to haggle over price and give some customers better deals than others. But McCormick saw this as eroding trust with the customer. In full price transparency, took the haggling off the table and gave those customers the confidence that they were getting a fair deal, the same deal that their neighbors were getting, built a lot of trust. This guy was a sales and marketing genius savant. I'm not quite sure where he learned all this, but he certainly is pioneering these practices that some cases seem obvious today. uh, But at the time, it's just mind blowing that uh, he would be so bold as to to offer some of these things. He also offered credit and payment installments over time. He's quoted as saying, it is better that I should wait for your money than you should wait for the machine that you need. I just I love this guy. His marketing and salesmanship is just off the charts. By the mid 1850s, the price was up to $130 now, and he would charge $30 down and then collect the $100 balance after harvest. I think they had six months after harvest to to pay the balance in full. All these innovative business practices that he was deploying 
built trust and helped to market the product, but he still had to get the customer's attention. In a competitive market like mechanical harvesting during the mid-1800s, there was a huge advantage to be gained by being in front of prospective customers. Well, he was innovative in that way, too. He was aggressive in buying up half and full page newspaper ads, writing his own editorials and providing public demonstrations. He found out testimonials worked extremely well from existing customers, especially those that told the story of how quickly his reapers would pay for themselves for the farmers that bought them. He later developed his own magazine called Farmers Advance that reprinted the latest recommendations from the agricultural colleges and research stations for things like crop rotation and fertility and weed and insect control and the use of hybrid seeds. He was trying to get farmers interested and knowledgeable and excited about adopting new technologies. And of course, all through this magazine were articles on McCormick farm machinery, as well as order forms that they could send in. This McCormick later said was in response to competitors that had big catalogs, which McCormick called whole books of humbuggery and misrepresentations. Uh, the McCormick catalog, he said, was set on providing facts and protecting farmers from being misled by gross fabrications. He was probably the original ag content marketer from what I can tell, but uh, I, I just love his approach and uh, he certainly seems like someone who called it the way he saw it. In 1851, McCormick took the Reaper International for the first time, entering in the great exhibition of 1851 in London, where he took grand prize. And at the end of a European tour that followed, McCormick was elected to the French Academy of Sciences for, quote, having done more for agriculture than any other living man. McCormick also knew how to capitalize on worries and trends in society at large. In 1849, when people were rushing to California for the gold rush, he advertised to warn farmers of a coming labor shortage and a big harvest. When the Homestead Act passed in 1862, more than 100 different companies were in existence selling reapers, but McCormick was right there to provide harvesters on credit to farmers who could take them to their new land. Can you imagine this time of settling new farmland for free from the government, essentially, with just a $30 down payment for a mechanical harvester? Just crazy to think about uh, these times in the late 1800s. On a much darker note uh, going on at this time was the beginnings of the American Civil War. As a Southerner, McCormick did support the South, but a bit ironically, his harvesters probably helped the North to win as his harvester helped free up more labor to fight. But also England was kind of having a bad harvest and needed some imports from the North, which some say might have kept them from supporting the South. During the four years of the Civil War, the number of reapers and mowers in use on America's farms grew from 90,000 to 250,000. So talk about an explosion of adoption. And I, I think it's interesting to state here that this is over 30 years after that first demonstration. So this explosion of adoption did happen, but it sure didn't happen right away. It was sort of like not at all, then all at once. Secretary of War Edwin Stanton is quoted at the time of saying the reaper is to the north what slavery is to the south. By taking the place of regiments of young men in the western harvest fields, it released them to do battle for the Union at the front and at the same time, keep the supplies of bread for the nation and its armies. 
So whatever McCormick's feelings were about the war, his company certainly was in demand during these troubling times. Another side note here, you know, digging into the history of agricultural innovation, it's a bit alarming how often it is linked to or at least influenced by some sort of war effort or dark time. Uh, the pressures and the priorities of such a time seem to call in a more urgent need for accelerated innovation for food security. Um, and I haven't really clarified my my thoughts around this yet. Um, I would say they're complicated, uh, but it's certainly telling that each of the three history of agriculture episodes I've done so far have all had a significant war narrative to them, which I assure you is not by design. Uh, but there's no doubt that necessity is the mother of all invention, and many of our greatest innovations and advancements have been spurred by uh, by dark times. In fact, I just was listening to an episode of uh, Morgan Housel's podcast about his new book that just recently came out, and he's talking about this, not in an agricultural context, but in a uh, a innovation context that uh, it's, it's often these dark times or these times of war that have uh, spurred the most innovation. So um, not saying that's a cause and effect relationship that we need to have dark times so we can have more innovation. I would never uh, think or say that, but it is something to to wrestle with and to um, try to to better understand. All right, back to McCormick here. By by 1870, his Chicago factory was turning out 10,000 machines in a year, and McCormick had built one of the most enviable companies in the U.S. But the very next year, adversity struck. The Great Chicago Fire of 1871 burned down roughly 3.3 square miles of the city, including over 17,000 structures, and destroyed McCormick's factory. Supposedly, at this point, J.I. Case, whose J.I. Case Threshing Machine Company was at the time a competitor of McCormick's, offered to build their equipment for them while they rebuilt the McCormick plant. But McCormick refused. And I, I couldn't verify that this actually happened, uh, but if it did, it kind of makes sense to me. Uh, while probably an earnest gesture by Case at the time, McCormick had to try to enforce his patent against several of his early licensees for continuing to build and sell equipment after he'd called off the arrangement with them. So he probably was a little bit scared that the same thing might happen with Case. I don't know. I'm just guessing there. But as you probably already know, spoiler alert, Case comes back into the picture about a century later in a big way. But in this time in 1871, McCormick was 60 years old and moved back to Chicago from New York, where he'd been living to lead the rebuilding efforts and get his company back on track. Now, a big part of McCormick's business genius that I have not yet talked about is his understanding of the importance of distribution. Second, maybe only to his obsession to satisfying the customer, distribution was how McCormick won. It started with that move to Chicago that I talked about earlier, along with the location. It was a bet on the railroad being the next great development in distribution throughout the country. He capitalized on cheap freight that was traveling empty from Chicago to pick up cattle in the country and bring them back to the meat packers. He filled empty cars with his machines and with his parts. Uh, and it was the game changing technology of the day that he went all in on the railroads. And he positioned himself and his company to use it to his full advantage. He also developed a wide network of independent salesmen trained to demonstrate the machines in the field, as well as to get parts quickly to repair machines in the field if necessary during the crucial harvest time of the farm year. He also leaned on these local 
people contacts to do things like assess creditworthiness and collect debts. This not only improved his distribution, but also, of course, his customer service. Over the years, Cyrus worked alongside his brothers, William, who handled the financial affairs and died in 1865, and Leander, who ran operations first in Cincinnati, then eventually in Chicago. As Cyrus was approaching his 70s, he was still more ambitious than ever about growing his company. I just think people like Cyrus are probably wired this way and uh, probably don't slow down very often. But in 1879, Leander, the financial brother, called Cyrus' plans to expand internationally wild and and visionary. And I'm guessing he used even stronger language than that in private because in 1880, Cyrus fired him, which is pretty ruthless after working together all those decades. It seems Cyrus felt that the company needed someone with more large scale manufacturing experience in that role. And he brought in a guy named Lewis Wilkinson and put his son, Cyrus Jr., in a position to learn from him. Cyrus ended up passing away four years later in 1884 at the age of 75. Cyrus Jr. took over the business and eventually in 1902, in a deal brokered by J.P. Morgan himself, the McCormick Harvester Company would merge with four other companies to form International Harvester. And as a lot of you know, International Harvester remained the number one farm machinery company in the world for many, many years uh, before it was overtaken by John Deere, I think, in the 1960s. Eventually, International Harvester fell on some hard times and um, ultimately merged with Case in 1985 to form what is now known today as Case IH. Here's an excerpt from a 1982 article in the Washington Post titled Harvester, the company that McCormick built. Uh, it says, quote, by the time McCormick died in 1884, his factory was producing 50,000 harvesting machines, more sophisticated versions of the early reaper, and U.S. farmers were growing wheat at a rate of 10 bushels for every citizen. When his Chicago factory opened back in 1847, the rate was four bushels per capita. In the 50 years after McCormick invented the reaper, his country had grown up. Chicago was the world's major wheat market and a rail, livestock, and mercantile center, largely because of McCormick's invention. The flood of wheat money helped build the United States as a manufacturing nation. The economics of farming provided human muscle for the industrial machine. Man, there's so much that I'm having to leave out of this one. I feel like I'm selling you all short a little bit here, but I don't want to make these episodes too terribly long. So many lessons on business and fascinating insights about how we got where we are today as an industry. Anyway, I hope there's something in there that you can take from this. Certainly for me, the obsession with the customer, the obsession with continuous improvement, the strategic thinking about enabling technologies like railroads that are going to change the way business is done, the capitalization on overarching trends and shifting landscapes. Uh, I, I mean, Cyrus McCormick is somebody that I could study for a very long time. In fact, I, I have a book on order that's going to hopefully eventually get here so I could read more about him. So many lessons there during a volatile and changing time for agriculture in America. Uh, I'm going to do more of these episodes. I hope you like them. I'm totally open to any and all feedback you might have. So send them my way, tim at aggrad.com or on Twitter uh, at Tim Hamrich. I do want to leave you with this one last nugget, though. In the process of working on this episode, I was listening to an episode of the Founders Podcast with David Senra, which is really kind of meta because that's the inspiration for this very format. Uh, but the episode was on a book containing 38 letters that John D. Rockefeller wrote to his son. And uh, I'm, I'm doing dishes as I'm listening to this episode, and I had to stop 
when I heard the name Cyrus McCormick included in one of Rockefeller's letters. So it's pretty cool. So I'm going to read you what David Senra read uh, from from these uh, Rockefeller letters on his podcast. Also leave a link for that episode in the show notes if you want to listen to it. But here's what he said about Cyrus McCormick. This is John D. Rockefeller writing to his son, Mr. McCormick, who has a head of luck and knows how to turn a harvester into a sickle for harvesting banknotes. He used harvesting machines to liberate American farmers, and he also rose through the ranks to become one of the richest people in the United States. This business genius, who was once just an ordinary farmhand, once had an esoteric saying, which went, luck is the remnant of design. In other words, we create our own luck, and no action can eliminate it. I thought that was pretty cool and sums up uh, a lot of what happened to Cyrus McCormick there. Anyway, thank you so much to Farmway for being the quarterly presenting sponsor this quarter. And thank you for your time and your attention. I don't take it lightly. I'll be back next week with another story of ag innovation.